In one of the most well-known love stories, Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare asks, what's in a name? Do the titles we give people define who they are on the inside, or is a name just simply a few letters strung together? In many instances, having your name on a trophy or a building leaves a mark of your accomplishments. Some people put their names on universities and libraries, while others create multi-million dollar companies that proudly hold their family title. In the world of science and medicine, naming a disease or a procedure after someone is called an eponym. Eponyms are a distinct honor that celebrates one person who did something no one else could achieve. They are traditionally, for people of my generation, clear entities of diseases or structures that we have learned a long time ago. And they're a simple way of referring to things, especially in times when things have to go fast. However, they are non-descriptive. So you have to have learned at some point and retained that knowledge and use it on a daily basis. That's Dr. Sabina Hildebrandt. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital and teaches the history of anatomy at Harvard Medical School. Eponyms have been around for centuries, and most of us are familiar with ones like Alzheimer's disease or Hodgkin's lymphoma. However, there's recently been a push to move away from using eponyms in medicine. There are different reasons why you would want to get rid of eponyms. One of them is this idea of decolonizing the medical language, and that's a very strong and certainly increasing voice out there that you will hear. And then there is, of course, the history that altogether some of these eponyms are associated with true criminals, with uh, Nazi perpetrators, and those certainly should not be quote-unquote honored with an eponym. The medical community has already changed the names of some diseases due to this controversy. Dr. Eric Matteson, professor emeritus of medicine at Mayo Clinic, played an integral part in one of these name changes. He had been researching historical work for a rare disease called vasculitis. Matteson dug into the lives of physicians who had been at the forefront of research for this disease, including Dr. Frederick Wegner, who is credited with discovering a form of vasculitis called Wegner's granulomatosis. As I was looking into Wegner's biography, I couldn't really find very much other than a couple of obituaries. So I had contacted the University in Lübeck, Germany, where he had worked, and I received a monograph of his articles and a biography, which was pretty complete except for the period between 1939 and 1945. This gap prompted Matteson to take a deeper look into Wagner's life. He and a colleague spent several years investigating archives in America, Germany, Poland, and the UK. And the two of us combined our efforts and eventually found out about his Wagner's Nazi past, his work at a concentration camp, and his work in the ghetto. Wagner had joined the Nazi party in 1932, just before Hitler took over. He reached a relatively high military rank and during World War II worked at a medical facility right next to a Jewish ghetto. Though Madison can't link him to any one specific trial, some records suggest that the doctor participated in experiments on prisoners from a nearby concentration camp. It was very important to me to determine what the legitimacy of the naming is and what the effects of having such a name are not only for the medical community but also on patients. On the one hand, patients know their disease as this form of vasculitis, which had been given this name. 
But when they are more understanding of what the background is, then it becomes more difficult for me to justify using such a name. And for patients, it's almost one patient said it's like wearing the name. She wasn't aware of the background, but then she felt the burden of the name also. And the medical community agreed. After years of research, a group of vasculitis experts, including Matteson, decided on a new name in 2010. Instead of using the eponym, the disease has been renamed to granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or GPA. Another benefit to this new label is that it uses technical terms that accurately describe the disease. For a while, we used both terms because we needed to have a period of transition and we need people to understand that we're talking about the same disease so that there's not confusion about it. But I think that the acceptance has been very good and also for the right reasons. However, it can be hard to get medical professionals to switch to using a new term. Hildebrandt says clinicians often hold on to the old terms, and it can take a couple generations of doctors before a new name can truly take root. If you've learned that a certain disease is called Reiter syndrome, then it takes longer to call it autoimmune reactive arthritis. You have to be very conscious of this fact, especially if that's not your own discipline, you know, and you learned it in the older context. So it will take a while. Clinicians are out there for several decades, and then they don't all go to continued medical education when it comes to eponyms, right? So <laughs> they will do that in some other field. We have these surgical methods that somebody introduces and then somebody, rather than saying this is the mobilization of the right colon together with part of the transverse colon, they will say this is the brash cattell me method, right? Because it's just faster and everybody knows what brash cattell described. So if it's easier and faster for doctors to refer to diseases and procedures using eponyms, should we keep them instead of moving toward more clinical and descriptive names? Of course, it's understandable to change a medical title in instances like Wagner's, where it was discovered he was a Nazi. However, is there a point where the name becomes more synonymous with the disease instead of the person who discovered it? That was usually the case, right? That it's just this and this disease. Nobody looked really at the who was this. But we've started to look more into this because we know about the real problems in this history, right? The, we know about the iniquities, about the transgressions that happen to gain knowledge. And as more and more of this history is revealed, both patients and medical professionals seem to think a name change is necessary in many cases. For example, Dr. James Sims created one of the first modern speculums called Sims Speculum. It's a medical device that's used in gynecology for vaginal exams. However, his journey to create this tool was extremely unethical. He experimented on women, enslaved women, who had terrible fistulas in the urogenital tract after childbirth complications and who suffered greatly. And he experimented on them at a time when essentially there were not yet pain-free surgeries and they most likely not asked for their consent. And this knowledge was gained with the price that these women had to pay by terrible suffering. There was a nine-foot bronze statue of Sims in Central Park in New York since 1934. In 2018, a city committee unanimously voted to tear it down after his unethical experiments came to light. But the argument against eponyms isn't solely based on these immoral doctors. Another reason is that many eponyms are wrong. Matteson says a lot of the people that are honored weren't actually the people who deserve the credit. 
And Wegener's granulomatosis is actually one of them because the disease that Wegener described was actually described before him. And interestingly enough, a publication by his medical school roommate predated his own publication. So, you know, you could have just as well called it by the name of the other physician, but that's really beside the point. The real point is, I think, that very often uh, medical discoveries and discoveries in general are the result of teamwork and collaboration. Not just the work of one person, like eponyms would have many people believe. That's not to say that all eponyms are bad, but don't be surprised if fewer and fewer discoveries are named after one researcher in the future. Hildebrandt says an alternative to completely getting rid of eponyms is to instead honor the patients who were experimented on. For one thing, there are also victims, so we want to, Nazi victims, that we want to actually remember, and having an eponym is a wonderful way of remembering somebody and bringing them back out into the open and honoring their life. And we need also really to go away from this whole idea of honor in medicine or hero worship in medicine. I truly dislike this whole idea. And though changing these old names takes a lot of time and research, Madison believes it's worth the effort. I think that to burden a person with a name like this, with a background, is not justified to make a patient who not only suffers from the disease, but then has this awareness. Uh, it's a double burden. You can find more information about Dr. Sabina Hildebrandt, Dr. Eric Matteson, and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Elizabeth Westfield. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. I remember the guy on the other end being like, what's going on? There's a lot of commotion. And I think I said, yes, it turns out I'm having a stroke and I'm in the ER, so can I call you back later? How heart disease can fly under the radar until it's too late. Then is aspartame too good to be true? You do see reduction in weight, you see reduction in liver fat and other markers of adiposity, and it, you see reduction similar to what you would expect to see or you do see with water. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. So one of the long-term goals of extrasolar planet research is to find that kind of planet that could host life. How high-res telescopes are leading the way in this search. Then, if you don't know how to play soccer and you don't appreciate the intricacies of the game, then you're bored watching people pass the ball around in the field and apparently nothing happening. Why does everyone but the U.S. seem to love soccer? I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. <laughs>